Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Jonathan Miller. I've been reading his research and writing about real estate and appraisals and home price trends and anything related to residential real estate for, I don't know, it's got to be close to 20 years. He is the co-founder of Miller Samuel. His data analytics and research powers uh, the back end of some of the biggest uh, real estate agencies in the country. He always has a tremendous amount of insight as to the current state of the market and the best way to contextualize what's going on in real estate. And we really talked about everything from aspirational uh, pricing to uh, our markets uh, at a peak and how when markets do peak and roll over in real estate, why it takes so long for prices to adjust. Uh, Newsflash, sellers are anchored uh, via the endowment effect to their own value of their home prices, which lag the actual market uh, for a long time. We, We talked about the death of cities being greatly overstated and, and why it's so challenging to convert all that excess office space into residential properties. If you are at all interested in real estate, buying a house, selling a house, renting an apartment, uh, owning a condo or co-op, or just want to know what the heck is going on with real estate today, uh, you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado my conversation with Jonathan Miller. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Jonathan Miller. He is the CEO and co-founder of Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal and consulting firm he first founded in 1986. His data and analytics powers many of the largest brokerage firms' um, reporting and information about uh, the state of the housing market. Uh, He is our returning champion. I think you and Scott Galloway are tied for the most Masters in Business appearances. Uh, Jonathan Miller, welcome back to Bloomberg. Great to be here, Barry. Thanks. So, so let's just talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you co-found Miller Samuel in, in 1986. What, what led you to the appraisal, real estate, and consulting business way back then? Well, uh, uh, initially, I worked for a management company that was bought by Marriott back in the mid-'80s. And uh, I said, well, what am I going to do with myself? And I got my real estate license, and I became a real estate agent in Chicago. And uh, was more on the analytics side, uh, you know, sort of the, the bean counter type. Mm-hmm. And um, then I moved to New York and uh, was, uh, eventually became a sales director on a new condominium building and saw these appraisers coming in without really data. There was no multiple listing system in Manhattan. 
And I eventually got together with my family and we started our firm Miller Samuel in 86. And it covers the New York City metro area. And then uh, starting in 1994, I started authoring um, uh, market studies uh, for the real estate company, uh, uh, Douglas Solomon and basically follow their footprints. I'm covering about 40 different housing markets in the U.S. right now. And that's really fun. And then it sort of marked in. I teach market analysis at Columbia for their grad students. Um, and so, you know, it's just been this sort of progression of, uh, uh, but everything related to housing and real estate trends. Well, well I love that you are, are one of the number crunchers who, who dive into the data and come up with analytics to really teach us about what's going on in the marketplace. And so I have to start with that question. What are you seeing these days in the real estate markets you cover? Are, are prices and volume still going up? Uh, as of this recording, uh, mortgage rates have just about doubled to 6% from you know, the low threes or even high twos. Uh, what's going on in real estate? Well, I think of it as, you know, you know with affordability dropping, literally by half since the end of December, uh, the market is going through a pause uh, where there is a tremendous pullback in demand. And, and you know, this is a significant uh, jump in rates. So you have this pullback. And what that's done initially is, you know, new signed contract volume is down uh, across all the markets we cover. Uh, and actually, that's been occurring for the last couple of months. This is, you know, the slowdown now is has accelerated, but really, we started to see contract activity slow down at the end of March, uh, beginning of April. Initially, it was because inventory had collapsed uh, and was keeping sales um, from occurring because there was no product, but it's really completely morphed into uh an affordability issue because nationally, you know, depending on the metrics you follow, we're looking at a 20% increase in housing prices plus rates doubling. What else could happen? Uh, it's a slowdown. I think you told me this, or you got this from the internet somewhere, or some where you said one of the best things for high housing prices are high housing prices. <laughs> well, well that, that's the that's the old commodity traders joke: the cure for high prices. Are high prices at a certain point, either the demand cools or the supply rushes to, to meet it. Yeah, and I think what people generally have wrong with uh, with the market cool down is, you know, initially when you have an external event like rates sp spiking, you have sales activity slow immediately and you have inventory rise immediately, uh, albeit from an unusually low place, and I'll expand on that, but but the part, the third step that I think most people get wrong is they expect prices to immediately fall. And there's really a one or two year period that it takes sellers to capitulate to market conditions. Although I do think that they'll capitulate faster in this condition uh, than in the past. But I, you know, buyers are in already, you know, that's their hesitation. And then you throw in a war you know, record or, you know, high inflation, um, you have all these uncertainties and everybody just, I mean, it's one of the biggest enemies of the housing market is uncertainty. And we certainly have a basket full of that right now. You know, I have a very vivid recollection at, at like cocktail parties and barbecues in 2010, 20, 2009, even people saying, 
why can't I get X for my house, the same house down the street sold for X, and it's not as nice as mine, and that was sold in 2006. And my answer was always, well, you could get that money. First, you need a time machine. Go back to 2006, <laughs> and you could get That's what the market was. Uh, and right. I watched what's amazing, especially about all the online services today. I watched these home sellers chase the price down. They were always lagging behind the market. Yeah. Uh, is that really a two-year process for pe before people you know, find religion and say, here's where the market is. If I want to sell this, I have to get there. So, yeah. So in my own, you know, 38 years of experience, you know, it's a sort of anecdotal uh, experience that uh, has telling me that it takes an average nationally about 15, 16 months, but call it, you know, a year to year and a half, two years, sort of, it, it's not a couple of months. Um, and to clarify, what I'm really saying is that it takes a long time for the seller to capitulate to the market so that they feel like closing, like they didn't leave money on the table, right? Mm -hmm. So so it's where they didn't like walk away from a sure thing. And that takes a lot of time. Um, I think what's a little different in this cycle is there's been so much equity buildup because of the rapid run-up in prices. Right. Uh, that um, maybe it's less painful because uh, it's money on paper to many, um, you know, in that in in the sense of um, you know people uh, you know worried about walking away from something that they they had in their in their hands. So if you're a contrarian, you become a buyer in the summer of 2023. Yes, yeah, I, I think so. And 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 I, what what I find. Uh, interesting is that, um, you know, when people look at change, you know, pivoting conditions, pivoting markets, you append the word forever, like prices are falling forever. Uh, <laughs> prices are rising forever. It's like this linear view. And if you look at some serious downturn periods in the housing market, like uh, the housing bubble, um, you know, 15 or so years ago, 13, 15 years ago, uh, really, uh, prices really didn't recover. It took about six years, but activity actually returned pretty quickly uh, by 2000, late 2009, early 2010. So this isn't like a decade or a, you know, a generational thing. Um, it's, it, you know, it's a shorter window than that. And um, honestly, uh, I felt, you know, rates should have been raised specifically through housing market optics about a year ago. Right. Uh, it feels like the Fed's late to the party uh, because you could just see the obliteration nationwide of inventory. Like one of the ways I think about housing supply, I think we have a tremendous amount of over-reliance on when you look at the state of the housing market, of looking at new construction, new development, mm -hmm. which in most local and national, we're really talking, you know, 10%, 15%, it, you know, ebbs and flows of total inventory. Right. Uh, well, what about the other 85% or 90% of supply? Um, that is the, you know, think of that supply as sort of the life cycle of occupants of the real estate. You know, they are, they're, you know, they're, they're trading up to a larger home because they have an expanding family. They're trading down, they're downsizing. Uh, you know, there's all these sort of life changes. 
And when you come at them with a 2.6, you know, that market with a 2.6 30-year uh, fixed, uh, you create this insatiable demand this, and you obliterate supply. And so this became a housing market of bidding wars. Most of the the 40-plus markets I cover for Douglas Elman are seeing bidding, like in Southern California, two-thirds to three-quarters, depending on the segment, of closings in the early part of this year were above the asking price. You know, wow. uh, That would be our proxy for bidding wars. In Fairfield County, Westchester, Long Island, you know, that ring New York City, uh, we were looking at 45 to 55 percent. How is that sustainable? How is that a good thing? So I'm quite relieved, at least thinking long term, uh, that we're moving out of this uh, untenable frenzy. And, you know, you and I have spoken about another aspect of um, not the demand side, but the supply side. You know, there's normally that chain of purchases that takes place. Someone moves into yeah. a starter home, there's a move up, there's a move to a, lo- a, a larger home, to a nicer neighborhood, eventually to waterfront, and that last person is, is downsizing. During the pandemic, especially when people were locked down in apartments, there were a lot of purchases with no correlating sale. People just went out and bought a second or third house. That had to have a massive impact on on the supply out there. Yeah, there's two things that happened. One was, uh, so specifically with a Manhattan example, uh, after the lockdown, uh, the, the pandemic lockdown, uh, rental prices fell a lot. They fell, um, you know, 20 to 30 percent. But there was no vaccine. There was, you know, the, the, the city was the global hotspot. And so the rental demand weakened because would-be tenants uh, with the collapse in mortgage rates fled to the, you know, that sort of, the, in air quotes, the narrative was fleeing the city or another air quote sort of a headline was exodus. Um, and so it was all outbound migration and no inbound. And you had these, these renters buying and then you had people weren't selling during the pandemic. They in the city they were buying a second home, something that I dubbed co-primary, which would be you know they're looking at a second primary residence that they can sort of toggle back and forth between the city and the suburbs. And um, and it there was no seasonality. You had you had maybe five years of you know the the typical you know young couple moves to the suburbs to have kids. You know, that compressed into like three months Um, and they had this whole distortion of sort of migration patterns. Um, And then on top of it all, you have remote, which became, you know, Zoom became ubiquitous in 24 hours. And all of a sudden you have a rethinking of what remote meant and it became a powerful force. What I was saying during the lockdown was the tether between work and home became infinitely longer uh, because you have a, a lot more flexibility. And on top of it, you have this skew towards higher end, meaning that, you know, because of the economic ba- damage from the lockdown was heavily weighted towards lower wage earners, mm-hmm. the upper half of the market was where what woke up or saw this boom first. And part of it is because, 
you know, just as sort of a generalized statement is that the higher the wage, the the higher the mobility or, you know, the ability to work remote. And it just dovetailed together really well. Huh, quite quite interesting. So a couple of we're recording this uh, in the middle of this uh, week on the June 21st. Um, some really interesting data points came out uh, this week. Existing home sale prices hit a record of $407,600 in May. And at the same time, home sales declined 3.4% in the face of rising interest rates. Uh, is it sort of contradictory that prices are going up even as sales decline? Or is that more about the mix of, of higher-end homes and lower-end homes? So I think it's more about the lag in uh, closing uh, information versus uh. actual on-the-ground contract activity. Uh uh, it is, um, you know, if you can think of uh, home price trends at the caboose on the end of the train, I always use this analogy, even though there's no cabooses on ends of trains anymore. Um, but really, the initial impact, you should really, for trends, you should be looking at sales, like petting home sales, uh, you know, contract activity in general, and then new inventory entering the market. That's much more fluid and in front of the prices uh, occur after the dust settles. So, for example, um, we publish monthly research in four different regions of the country, and new signed contracts were already beginning to cool back in March. And, uh, you know, eventually that leads to an uptick in um, uh, listing activity, which then eventually, uh, you know, you know, uh, levels off or cools sales. So I don't think the pricing, the prices rising is a result of a shift in the mix towards higher property. I think it's really just a lag in the actual data itself. So, so where are we in this housing cycle? I, I noticed that more supply is coming online. There was a great chart the other day at, at Calculated Risk showing the most single-family home completion since, I think, 07. It was like a, well over a decade. Yeah. Are, are we seeing that many more um, new homes and uh, existing homes come on the market as supply, uh, or is it really just been down so long it looks like up to me i think the latter so the way to think of it uh and this is my analogy just using my my hometown in connecticut uh my town saw 200 uh listings pre-pandemic for the prior four or five years plus or minus 20 listings but it was you know straddling the 200 threshold a year after the pandemic there were 50 wow. and so you look at it and go wow that's a real drop uh, and then the beginning of the year before the, the rate increases, there were 12. Wow. And so that's where I would call it a clap. So now inventory has quadrupled. Okay, so there's 50. It's still 75% below pre-pandemic levels. Right. So when I look at I look at that and say, yeah, inventory is rising, and that's a good thing. Um, but I don't know if people – realize how insanely low inventory became or began um, and and you know one of the things um, 
you know, that I think is going to be apparent in the coming year or two is that we have probably built too much multifamily rental product. Um, Right now, you know, that it's all sort of responding to the surge in, you know, in rental prices. But part of that surge in rental prices is because uh, the surge or the rising rates are just the fact that lenders are not fast and loose, that they are, you know, we're not going to have a banking crisis on the other side of this because lenders are tighter than they were in the decades prior to the housing bubble. Um, and so people that don't qualify, oh, they tip into the rental market, right? right. I mean, they're not, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have, financial engineering like we did, you know, in the mortgage world circa 2005, six. What, what, a, what a funny coincidence that mortgage lenders were much looser before the housing crisis. I mean, you know, sometimes these coincidences are just, just amazing. It's, and, it's and amazing. S- and since the financial crisis, it's become much harder to, to get a mortgage. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, all day or subprime. I mean, prime borrowers really had to jump through some hoops in the years yeah. after 0809. Is it still that tight, or has things you know normalized now, a little bit? So the way to look at it is uh, uh, underwriting standards, mortgage underwriting standards. You know, during the 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 housing bubble, you know, you just had to have a pulse or fog or mirror. In the years subsequent, it has the restrictions have deteriorated, but we're still not on par with sort of pre-housing bubble era lending standards that that lending is generally more conservative and there's less sort of maybe on the margin, but there's really less sort of alternative workarounds for financing. I think it's much more sophisticated. And I think some of the restraints with uh, Dodd-Frank uh, you know, have have helped to a certain degree, which makes us in a much less vulnerable vulnerable position. Um, but that has helped create much more tightness in the rental market in general. And I think we have this, you know, m- large response in multifamily rental development being created. And I I, I suspect in over the next year or two that that's going to be a um, it's going to be apparent because people, when they look at the rental development being created, there's assumption of, well, more units, lower rent, but just like new home construction, new rental construction skews to the upper half of the market. Mm -hmm. It doesn't address the entire market. So you're creating a lot more rental units, but you're creating not necessarily the right distribution of rental units. And I think that's the, the challenge for the rental market going forward. So, uh, just so for, I was just going to say, just in New York, um, you know, we, we report every month the rental, um, you know, the r- rental market. And in Manhattan, the median rent was $4,000, cracking the 4000 threshold right. for the first time in history. R- average rents are just shy of 5000 a month at 49.75. At 49.75, it's still an all-time record. And we're not even to peak leasing season, which is in August. The rental market sort of peaks at the end of the summer. And so there's still a lot of pressure in the rental market going forward over the, you know, whether or not we, um, 
you know, we have rising inflation. It's, it's very tenuous, and this is not unique to much of the U.S. Huh. So, so let's, let's address that, because during the pandemic, I read, at least in the New York Post, New York City is dead. It's never coming back. No one's ever going to move <laughs> here. It's all over for cities, and not just New York, but San Francisco and Chicago and Austin and Philadelphia and Boston. And go down the list. What is the state of uh, real estate in, in the big cities and and where are you seeing more of the explosive growth? Is that more the Sun Belt or is that the coast? What's the state of? Well, uh, well, well so in terms of um, urban markets, just starting with New York first since I'm based there, uh, here we have, and this sort of speaks for what we're seeing across the U.S., you're looking at a city like New York and the office towers are two-thirds empty right now. Mm-hmm. Yet, oh, in 2022, we've had some of the highest sales volumes in history. We've had record pricing in the rental market. We've had some of the highest new leasing activity in history, and we're having record rents. So people being in the city, again, to this sort of tether between work and home, it's you know you have empty office because of remote but people are in the still in the city or want to be in the city so it is um uh, this is uh, i there is a white paper the source escapes me from uh nber uh talking about 50 percent of price growth uh is related uh, during the pandemic era is related to um remote work and the churn that it has created um, and there's a big misnomer, you know, there has to be another reason why people are in these urban, coming back to these urban markets. And I think part of it is just what the cities have to offer and what, um, you know, the cultural activity, you know, I'm not working for the trade, uh, the tourism bureau, but, you know, there's other reasons people are in the city, you know, lifestyle or whatever broker term you want to call it. Um, and this is being borne out in the fact that office towers are two thirds empty still. That almost sounds like uh, a, a problem that solves itself. And my frame of reference was after September 11, 2001, many of the office towers in lower Manhattan either were converted to residential or partially converted to hotels and residential. Uh, how realistic is it? And, and you know, I'm glad I, I, I wasn't an investor in Hudson Yards that came online just as demand for office space went through the floor. But uh, how realistic is it to convert offices to to residential real estate? And and let me point out, when I was in grad school and for about a decade afterwards, I lived at 90 Lexington Avenue that originally was a Blue Cross Blue Shield building that was converted to residential like a a few decades before I got there, and a decade after I left, it, it, it went condo. So I know it's doable. How realistic is it? Uh, it's not very realistic at all in terms of scale. Uh, <laughs> and the reason there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, one, like the financial district's uh, conversion frenzy, that was mostly Class B office, older, uh-huh. uh, almost loft-like. Uh, a lot of the the development that I'm familiar with, and these new um, ones are all class A. Yeah. So the way I look at it is, um, 
when you uh, so there's a couple of things. One is time. So a lot of the conversion. Listen, there there will be some conversion. I'm saying there won't, but I think nowhere near on the scale of what could be. Uh, you know, the, the the sort of the the opening question in this discussion is, what are we going to do with all these you know empty offices? Well, part of what you're going to do is you're going to drop the rents, right? Um, but radically, somewhat in you know in theory, except for that you've got them financed, and this is the collateral, right? And all of a sudden. You know, the cash flow is much is half or, you know, a third of what it was pre-pandemic. Um, you also have, uh, you know, converting these buildings to res- to have residential certificate of occupancies is tremendously expensive. And the third is community approvals, uh, zoning approvals, um, which is a long process. I'm not saying it can't be done, but who knows what the conditions are going to be like five years from now. Um, Mm. One of the things we're seeing is uh, we're seeing a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, well, obviously vacancy, but also concessions because landlords, some aren't feeling the pain because, you know, say 80% of the leases in the building have, you know, five or more years remaining on them. So, uh, you know, if if a, if there's if there's still an occupancy, the bill, the business hasn't gone under. They're still paying their rent and they're paying sort of pre-pandemic levels. Um, what we're seeing a tremendous amount of in the commercial world is that leasing on a per square foot basis. Everybody talks about sort of the asking rent. And when you look at all the reports on the state of the office market in cities, uh, they never talk about like the net effective, you know, less the free rent right. and the build build outs and all those expenses, you know, which, you know, it, in reality, many landlords are seeing 30 to 50 percent hits, at least in my, in, you know, in my through my optics, um, which is not an inse- in, you know, inconsequential amount. Um, and so I think the the asset that gets holding the bag on the post-pandemic world is really, um, you know, the commercial uh, sector to a lesser degree, the retail sector, uh, which is, you know, gets its oxygen, especially in central business districts from commercial office buildings. So, you know, we're in, we we still are in, you know, uh, three to five years of sort of figuring this out. This is, this is a slow motion train wreck. Um, you know, I mentioned the Sun Belt earlier. Where, wherever I look, um, where the weather is warmer and the taxes are lower, and that could be places like Austin or Nashville or Southern Florida, it seems they've been a magnet for people leaving either cold weather or higher tax state or, or just sort of, you know, retiring. What's going on in the Sun Belt and, and, and what does that look like uh, going forward? Well, I cover uh, almost two dozen housing markets in Florida, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting about a lot of these markets is, just like you say, they're coming there for lower tax exposure. But also, these areas are aggressively going after the C-suite of companies to relocate in these places for the tax credits um and uh the weather and all that sort of thing and have been relatively successful 
I think initially after the uh, the lockdown, you know, where when you headlines screamed in like to your earlier point about New York City is dead forever, you felt like by the end of 2020 that there was going to be 11 people left in New York City, you know, that everybody was leaving. Um, but uh, what we're finding is that the people that have left have been fairly quickly replaced, uh, but we're still, you know, net, net losing population. Markets like Florida or Texas, those housing markets are being restructured essentially because of remote. And um, what we're seeing for the first time really is we're seeing, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of the story was the the affluent, you know, the Wall Streeters that would, uh, you know, buy a second home somewhere. They would buy in Florida. They'd buy Palm Beach and Miami. And now we're seeing luxury or high end real estate statewide, all over the place. Like, you know, and that's a sign of sort of structural. Uh, I don't know if the word is dispersion, but it's just spreading out mm-hmm. because the uh, because the the regional economy, it, you know, has quickly adapted to um, you know to this inbound cohort of the population. That this isn't a boom and bust cycle for Florida. Um, sure, their market will slow down because of the spike in real in uh, interest rates, um, but this isn't. I don't think this is a flash in the pan. I think. This is real because of every seemingly every part of Florida is expanding. So it's a secular trend, not a temporary issue. Let, let me ask you about California. I always thought California was a wonderland. The last few times I've been there, I've been kind of surprised at, you know, you drive to La Jolla from San Diego. There used to be a lot of open space between the two, and, and now it seems like every ridge has a house on it. Every every hill, every mountain, you know, it, yeah, it really seems like it really seems like they've wildly built, maybe even overbuilt, uh, parts of Southern California. What are you seeing in that that region? Well, well, uh, Southern California of all the regions that I cover, uh, you know, the average uh, market, and this is a little dated now. We're, we'll be coming out with second quarter in a couple of weeks, but. The first quarter data was showing that, uh, on average, um, about 65% of the transactions from Los Angeles down to San Diego uh, were selling above the last asking price, like a tremendous demand. Above, wow. Disp- above ask. So our proxy for bidding wars is uh, a purchase price that closed higher than the last asking price. Um, and it's about two-thirds of the transactions, and in some sub-markets, it's 75 80%. Um, we're not seeing that intensity now, but uh, but still there's a significant imbalance between supply and demand where demand is still overpowering. Um, there has been a tremendous outbound uh, migration into low-tax states like Texas, uh, but, you know, at least in the housing market, there's still – it's still extremely tight. Um, the thing about California, they're going through a lot of problems like drought and wildfires, you know, partly from overbuilding and are encroaching on uh, woodlands. So it, it seems more tenuous, but it is it's still highly popular, tremendous amount of demand, at least in Southern California, that we're seeing um, 
But even in Southern California, just like Florida, uh, you know, you're seeing with the rise in rates, you're seeing a pullback in uh, the intensity of contract volume. Huh, really quite interesting. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Jonathan Miller. He is the CEO and co-founder of Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal and consulting firm. His analytics power, uh, some of the most influential real estate agencies, uh, back offices and back end. He is also a professor at the Graduate School uh, at Columbia University and additionally sits on the Mayor's Economic Advisory Panel and the New York State Budget Division Economic Advisory Board. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the appraisal business. It has dramatically changed since the great financial crisis and the mortgage boom and bust of the 2000s. Tell us what, what's going on in the world of, of real estate appraisals. Sure. So you have... Uh this uh, sort of butting heads between human beings and, uh, you know, uh, uh, we call them AVMs, automated valuation models, or press a button and you get a, um, a number or a value for the house. Um, sort of the poster child for this, and if you don't mind me talking about this estimate real quick. Sure. Uh, just to understand sort of the disparity between automation automating numbers in housing and how dirty the data is um, and human beings. So <laughs> if you look at the Zestimate nationwide, the nationwide accuracy rate, the, let, me, let me clarify, the median accuracy rate of a Zestimate is 2%. So that means that 50% of the time, the Zestimate is within 2% of the actual value and 50% of the time, it's not. Now, the consumer just sees, hey, 2%, it's within 2%. That's pretty accurate. But it's only 50% of the time it's within 2%. Um, but it gets, if you dig a little bit deeper, um, it's only within 2% if the property is currently listed for sale. If it's not listed for sale, this estimate median accuracy rate is 7% in the U.S., so that means that seven percent of the time, it's within seven. You know, if it's not listed, it's within what it will sell for uh, within seven uh, percent, and fifty percent of the time, it's not. So, in other words, the estimate needs human beings to price the listing right. to shave off five percent in accuracy. Listen, I'm not saying that human beings, like appraisers or brokers, uh, don't have our flaws. Uh, but it is kind of interesting that it's been brilliantly marketed, yet it's wildly unreliable. And Half so the time, it works see, every time. Exactly. I think. <laughs> well, ninety-eight percent of the time, half the time, it works every time. <laughs> but um, but I but I look at that, and um, and you know, it's sort of over-promising and under-delivering because public record, the quality of public record across the the U.S. is incredibly 
varied by municipality, by county, you know, however you want to break it out. Um, and they're, they're, they're largely reliant on that. And just a few years ago, they started uh, significantly weighting um, the list price. Uh, so if you, you know, a house is worth a million five, according to this estimate, you put it on for two, the next day, the, the estimate is two. And then huh. it doesn't sell and you take it off. The estimate goes down to a million and a half the next day. What is that? Like that is, I don't, I, and so anytime I see a news story that relies on Zestimate related information, to me, it's problematic um, because it's not what it is. It's certainly fun to poke around and look at stuff, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't have the precision that has been brilliantly conveyed in their marketing. Well, Obviously, Zillow didn't do well trying to build a home flipping business relying on their own estimates. Their own they, home. Yeah, they took a giant write down on that. Yeah, the Zillow offers, uh, uh, you know, that broke, and I think the same goes for, um, you know, the iBuyer, the internet buyer right. sort of subset, um, where you know there's this automation promise. Um, and there's some validity to it. I'm not saying that, but you got the impression initially that that was going to just take over the entire market. And now it's something like 1% of transactions. Uh, it's a very small number. Uh, and in a declining market, they haven't really been tested. Um, they've only existed in rising housing markets, flat to rising. So it's going to be an interesting few years to see how they do. Huh, really, really intriguing. I, I'm kind of surprised um, that they didn't do better because you would have thought, hey, forget the what we're sharing publicly. We have our own internal metrics. Let, right. Let's see how we can use that. And it turns out they were just relying on everybody else, uh, you know, everybody the yeah, same just, data everybody else saw, and it, it didn't really work out. No, no, it didn't. And I think it also says something about there's just too many people in the space. Uh, and so I think there's going to be some compression in uh, participation just because the scale of investment is so enormous. The stakes are so high. Um, you know, I wish them well. I just I, I think it's I, it's been a little bit over overhyped. Um, but back to your question, sort of the state of the of the appraiser, of sort of the appraisal world. Um, the, um, you know, we're going through a period, it's, it's fascinating. Um, you know, the appraiser, I was told by someone senior to me a long time ago, you know, um, uh, doesn't have the answer and the transaction has the answer, the answer being the, the, the price, mm -hmm. you know, the brokers have the answer, the, the mortgage company has the answer, the buyer and the seller all have the answer. Because they all have skin in the game, right? They're all <laughs> sort of part, right? They, everybody's smart. They all know what the value is, what the number is. And the external third party that doesn't have, you know, they get paid whether it's high or, you know, they're above or below or at the, the purchase price. Um, uh, you know, they, they, and they don't, we don't have, as an industry, we don't have much representation. Um, in Washington, we're just a fraction. There's only about, 
you know, optimistically, there's 75,000 appraisers in the U.S. versus a million and a half real estate agents. So, you know, we're vastly outnumbered in lobbying. You might have two lobbyists, really, of any, um, you know, um, uh, gravitas in, in Washington compared to a much different world. So we tend to be sort of run over. However, our industry also has some real problems where we have no diversity um, as an industry. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, ranks 400 occupations by diversity, you know, inclusion of women. And um, guess who's dead last in the BLS ratings? The appraisal <laughs> industry. It's it's 98% white. Wow. That's, and so that's amazing. I'm a middle-aged white guy and I'm, I'm, I'm the profile of, of the industry. And yet we go through periods like refi booms where there's a chronic shortage. And a lot of the problems uh, stem from um, primarily uh, an organization called the Appraisal Foundation, which I have been a pain in the neck for them for a few years. <laughs> you you um, are anticipating a question of mine, and let me frame this for listeners. Okay. So, so you put out a weekly email that I've been getting for a yes. hundred years. It comes out Friday afternoon, and it's just a broad overview of the state of the market with lots of charts and data. And at the end, there are a whole bunch of links, including a bunch of real estate links and your links and some more interesting oddball links. But every now and then, it seems that you and the, um, I, I keep calling them the Appraisal Institute, the Appraisal Foundation, you seem to have a beef with the organization that supposedly yeah. represents your field. Is this the underlying basis of your ongoing um, <laughs> harassment of yes. them for everything yes. from incompetency to... I don't know if I could say criminality, but you've certainly come pretty close to accusing them of that. Yeah, I, I just think it's um, so what the Appraisal Foundation does is they essentially maintain, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of the standards that I, as an appraiser to be certified, have to adhere to. And that's embedded in uh, 55 states and municipal or uh, I don't know, uh, territories, 55 states and territories. And every time there's an update, you know, the, all the 55 states and territories have to update. And uh, they've wildly overstepped uh, what I think their charter is. Like they, they uh, the diversity thing I told you, uh, you know, they're 98%. So they hired the head of their new diversity effort is a middle-aged white guy. Uh, that seems to make I have a, a problem sense. with it. Um, and and also um, they have created a uh, essentially um, it's called USPAP. That's our license or the, our, the standards, uniform standards of professional appraisal practice that we have to follow and sign certifications in our reports um, to, you know, it's to, a whole idea is to protect the public trust. Right. The problem is that it's really a um, sort of a, an effort the rules that our our re, our world doesn't change very much um and yet w th this is updated every two years and um and they what they do is they make changes and then they 
and then they embed that into state law. And two years later, they remove those same changes or four years later. And, and it just kind of goes back and forth. And the reason for that is that they, they can sell and charge for classes to maintain your license by providing new materials every two years that the appraisers have to buy. So you can when, show me that this, you know, year 2000, 2002, 2004, 2006, uh, 2004 were the same, 02 and 06. I mean, is it that metronomic? Are they that blatant? Uh, it's it's more through incompetence. Mm-hmm. So I give you a I give you an idea. So uh, they they changed a, a rule that said if you're intentionally or unintentionally misleading, then you violated your license. So in other words, if you made a typo, you basically uh, you know can lose your license. And and uh, they don't have counts uh, up until at least you know lately they don't have lawyers review this. This is getting embedded into fifty five states and municipal I keep saying municipal territories uh, across the U S. And yet uh, there's no review of this. It's just a bunch of appraisers on a board that sort of say, "Hey, wouldn't it be nice?" I know this because I've been there. Uh, would it be nice to just define misleading when definitions like that should be done in a court of law, interpreted in a court of law, not just by a bunch of appraisers on a board? Um, the other and and so that came that became challenged because of my writings. Um, and then there's just an endless example of this. The, the bottom line is that uh, I'm against anything that damages the credibility of appraisers in the public eye, because if you don't have that public trust, which is what this organization is charter or you know supposed to maintain, um, then you're doing a disservice to everybody in the industry, um, you know that has a license that you know puts their their job on the line every day when they do sign off on an appraisal. It's just sort of amateur hour and um, I'm doing it and I've, I've myself and sort of a, a band of other people, I think have, you know, really created pressure to, um, to invoke change, but it's slow going. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, which is uh, a phrase that uh, you coined a couple of years ago called aspirational pricing T- tell us about that sure it's uh it's sort of a safety in numbers uh really started seeing this in luxury vacation uh locations where uh i'll, I'll just throw out random numbers say a home a luxury home is purchased for five million dollars and they put a million into it or two million into it and then they put it on the market for 30 million <laughs> and and 
and you're like, okay, well, that's silly, right? Uh, but, but you know, they become a bold-faced name in, on page six uh, in the post, you know, because, hey, they've got a home on the market for $30 million. And then what happens? The 10 houses in that vicinity put their homes on the market for $25, 35000000 million, and none of them ever sell because they're not worth that. But it's like the safety in numbers, and that was quite a phenomenon uh, leading up to the um, – the sort of the pandemic era. And this is another sort of, this is a recent development um, that is starting to, we're starting to, to see. Uh, and it's like the, if we, you know, for your national listeners, be the Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, Manhattan type apartment, luxury, sort of old world um, type apartments. And um, uh, you have, they have boards that approve the buyers and uh, and and I'm making the numbers up. Say someone, you know, pays ten million dollars for an apartment, and uh, you know, three years ago, something in the same line sold for thir- fifteen or thirteen, um, and it sold for less. And so the board kills the sale because they're not happy about the price because it went down. And then the seller put, you know, puts it back on the market and they get another offer of 10 million. The apartment's been clearly vetted by the market. Right. And it's the, the, the board kills that sale. And, and I'm aware of uh, a handful of those recently. And, and that's aspirational pricing in the context of the, the co-op board because they think that they're protecting they're you're performing their fiduciary duties of protecting the value. However, they can't control the market. The market is the market, as you know, as someone once said. And um, and what they're actually doing is damaging right. the value of you know they're violating their fiduciary responsibility. And I think there's going to be a we always see this in a in a market that's cooling. We tend to see this activity, and then we get involved in litigation you know, as an expert um, to, um, to, to um, sort of empirically demonstrate this. this so just, a re- just a reminder that there's a special room in hell for anyone who's ever served on a condo board or co-op board. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there are endless, if you're in New York for any length of time, and I'm sure other cities have comparable things, there are endless, endless, endless stories about um, the relentless stupidity of the behavior of boards. I don't know what it is. You put six people together in a room involving real estate and their average IQ halves. It's, it, it, it's quite amazing. Um, that, that, that's kind of fascinating. And, and related to, you know, you mentioned Old World, New York City, um, Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue Apartments. Um, am I stating this wrong, or have you pretty much been into just about every penthouse in Manhattan? How how accurate is that statement? I, I'd say I've been in probably ninety. I, I mean, I'm I'm wild guessing here ninety plus percent. Uh, the one missing, the big one missing from my list is the Pierre Hotel. Mm-hmm. Penthouse. I've been in the Sherry Netherland and a bunch in most of the penthouses on Central Park South and West. Uh, that's the one big one that's left over. I came close, but didn't quite make it. And it's 
it's it's always very exciting, um, you know, to see very large space, spectacular views. Um, and it's really a mixture of some apartments are in amazing condition and some haven't been renovated in, you know, multiple decades. Right. Um, but but just being and seeing the entirety of it is quite never gets old. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And and do those go for market prices or are we still seeing aspirational pricing? No, they go they they go for market like uh, during the sort of uh 5 or so years ago sort of peak aspirational pricing there was a penthouse I want to say it was uh you know I can't recall offhand but where it was but it was uh asking 125 million and uh you know, catch a falling knife, the price kept dropping, and I think it sold for in the 40s. All right, so, but you anchored uh, people up at 100, so maybe it would have gone for 20 otherwise. Is is that the thought process behind this? Let's get people anchored higher? I think that's the, 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 the idea, but, you know, after it's on the market for three or four years, uh, I can't imagine that being a... Uh, sort of a positive, <laughs> uh, positive thought for the owner, um, especially if they're barely living in it and, and they're paying twenty five thousand a month in homeowner association <laughs> right. fees. Right. You know. So so maybe initially that was the strategy, but I find that that almost never works. Uh, it just you know empirically that. Um, the market is not that dumb, right. uh, basically. That's so so my, let's talk. My quote um, of the day. You, you and I have talked about one of my favorite Zillow tricks. Pick a, a, a town, especially a, a higher-end town. You could do Greenwich, Connecticut or Santa Barbara, California, or by me, Sands Point, New York, and uh, you'll get a full listing of everything that's for sale. Um, and you could then use the Zillow app to sort and I always like to sort by newest. Show me the most recent listings. And then right. I scroll all the way down to the bottom. And you're shocked that this has been the hottest housing market, certainly since 08, 09, if not 06, 07, uh, if not yep. our lifetimes. And it's amazing there are houses that have been listed for sale for 300 days, 500 days, 1,500 days. I mean, is, is are those homes really for sale if they can't find a buyer after five years, that just seems absurd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they are, and it's all based on the notion that hey, you know, somebody, you know, I get, uh, you know, it's sort of like I'll get lucky. Uh, didn't Google have that uh, a search button at one time? I don't know if it still does. Right. You know, uh, I, I feel I lucky. Lucky and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sort of analogous to that maybe i i don't know but I, it is it is amazing i i also think part of that is just dirty zillow data you know that it's just not removed um oh no a lot of this stuff common. is I, i'm going to disagree with you on that because i i sifted through a lot of these um most recently so most recently uh this kind of small waterfront um, supposed to be on an acre, and you look at the map, and it's like there's no way that's an acre. And they were asking nine five, which I thought was insane. Right. When right 
you know, three houses down. So this is like a yeah. 3,000 square foot, um, one car garage, no basement, waterfront, right. lovely house on a built around a um, sort of center courtyard, but tiny. Down, just like three or four houses down is like a 25,000 square foot, three acre house is half the price. So, so I called the agent and said, I don't understand. I'm not looking to bust your chops, but how do you figure nine and a half when for four and a half, I get four times that? Well, you know, the owner is a collector of fine arts and he thinks eventually he'll get his price. So now I have to go back right. through the Zillow history and it was originally up for sale for like 12 or 14, six years ago. Right. Off, back on for 11, off, back on for 10, off. And I'm like, so this house really isn't for sale. This is just someone goofing around. When, uh, call, me yeah. when the, yeah. call me when the estate has to dispose of it and the market will find a real price. Yeah, I mean, if if you're looking at a listing that in this market that you know is 180 days or older, just as a sort of, <laughs> it's not even serious, right? I mean, right. It's, it's not even. Um, I had a, a, a situation. Um, I remember this was four or five years ago when Greenwich was really a weak market. I may have told you the story in the past, and you know, some well-known financier you know, had a house, I'm guessing, you know, was worth six or 7 million, put it on for 15 million, no offers. You know, this is that aspirational pricing era. Uh, uh, no, no activity. And then uh, they cut the price to 11. You know, it's worth six or seven, probably on a good day, cut it to 11, $4 million and uh, sat on another year Jeez. and no offers. And then they go on stage and say, you can't give a house away in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, you know, that's really not fair to Greenwich, Connecticut, because your, you know, your view of the value of your property has nothing to do with what the market will support. Right. And uh, I find that I, I, you know, we would see that all the time, you know, where it's like they view the original price as like their equity and then out of the goodness of their heart they're giving away um you know a chunk of it even though you know it's all based on nothing one of the things that i do as a hobby is i collect listings I, i'm sorry closed sales around the u.s that sold at or above uh the 50 million dollar threshold you've had a chart of this that you update on a regular yeah. basis Yes, yes. And it's sort of a, a hobby gone wild because in 2014, I remember I was approached by a homeowner that had a house in California. And I, I don't even know what it was probably worth, but, you know, it was single digit, you know, but a lot of money. And uh, they put it on the market for like 30 plus million. And that's when we started to see this sort of aspirational pro uh, pricing phenomenon um, occur and it never sold. And um, I just started tracking them nationwide and not listings, but just actual sales. Right. And uh, as in 2021 was the biggest year by far, and there were well over 40 transactions in the U.S. residential that whether single family condo or co-op uh, that sold for um, 50 million or higher. 
And 2022, and this is sort of just before, uh, um, you know, well, it, uh, up through today, I think there's been, if you, if you were to annualize, you know, so optimistically, if you annualize the sales to date, it would be the second highest in history. And there was just a closing uh, of $175 million transaction in Florida just this week. Um, and so what in 2014 was something I would add to the list once a month or two months. It literally is now once a week. Uh, wow. there's transactions. I, I remember the, so, I remember the developer that had created that $500 million spec house in LA, oh, yeah. which seemed absurd. Yeah. He filled it with, you know, uh, high end sports cars and art. And I believe if I remember correctly, it was ev- eventually auctioned off at bankruptcy for about a quarter of that price. Yeah, about a, I think it was a million twenty-five. Yeah, that was one hundred twenty-five. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. It was called the one. And um, <laughs> well, now you could call and, it the quarter. Yeah, the quarter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there, but you know, it's funny because it's sort of this circus sideshow for housing because you know, just like in New York, there was a two hundred thirty-nine million dollar condo, and there was a hundred million dollar condo, and you know, there's these big numbers, and so. Um, you know, you'd see people with modest houses saying, hey, if someone's willing to pay, you know, uh, $125 million for a home, then my home has to be worth 10% more. <laughs> and you're like, no, it has nothing to do with you. It's a, it's a circus sideshow. You um, know, that's, but- the aspirational pricing is great for your realistic neighbors. So the $6 million house that's up for sale for $30 million, Hey, if you're two two houses down and your house is five, you could say, "Hey, I really am looking for seven. Look at that house down the street; it's thirty million. Right? Seven is a bargain the if you're realistic. That's the logic. Yeah. Well, we were having people in Manhattan in a you know a six floor tenement walk up. Right. Uh, you know, looking at you see, you have to walk up six flights of stairs to go to your apartment. Worth a million dollars. Um, you know, much more modest pricing. Uh, Making comments that you know when Michael Dell bought his for a little over a hundred million at one fifty seven that <laughs> hey you know mine has to be worth more and we're like no uh, it's a different mar- it's a different market that has nothing to do with you plus um, he's worth twenty three billion dollars and a hundred million is a rounding error to him right right exactly people um, people forget that the countdown has begun from May fourteenth to sixteenth. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, I have one curveball question for you before we get to our favorite questions, and that is, why does your Twitter bio mention that you're a lobster fisherman? <laughs> well, let's just say I'm kind of hanging on to the past. Um, I live close to uh, Long Island Sound, um, big body of water, and when I, I'm an empty nester now, but I had four sons, and we used to drop lobster pots and, you know, fish for lobster. But I only caught 
we only caught one legal lobster a year. Everything else we had to throw back. They had to be a certain weight. They right. had to be, you know, Length. we had to instrument to measure them. And and um, and I always said it was the most expensive lobster caught on the eastern <laughs> seaboard every year because when you add up the cost of the boat, the dock, the fuel, the winterization, um, the time, uh, you know, and then half the time when we caught a legal lobster, I just threw it back in, catch and release. <laughs> Right. Um, uh, but it was, it was really, it was really fun. Um, uh, they, I think they pretty, I think they banned, um, I sold my boat two years ago, so we don't lobster fish anymore, but I'm, I'm very proud that I was once a lobster fisherman, even though if you delve in deeper, I wasn't that good at it. (laughs) All right. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, Tell us what you're streaming these days. What was keeping you entertained during lockdown and beyond? So um, I'm going to, uh, I was anticipating this question as I, I listened to your other uh, interviews. And um, I'm very sad to say that I hardly watch any television and I don't stream anything. My wife does. Wow. I could answer for her, but I literally... And I, I think I, I don't know where this came from, but my uh, my grandfather was a motion picture projectionist at the, the town theater. Uh-huh. And my my dad was a latchkey kid and watched, you know, the same movie a hundred times only in sections and did his homework with, with his dad. <laughs> right. And uh, and so as a kid, I we never went to movies. Um, and so I'm like, I, it's funny, I've just. I, I don't know what it is. I guess maybe that makes me old fashioned or something. I don't know what it is. I just don't care. <laughs> so, I became so a full a, blown a television idiot during the lockdown. Just All we right, couldn't go that. anywhere. We couldn't do anything. And it's just stream, stream, stream. And now I'm trying, it's become a, a habitual. And now I'm trying to break that habit and uh, get out of the house more as, as the world opens right. up again but it, it, it's a rabbit hole that you can easily... yeah i just i just like screen time for me uh is i just i try to fight it i'm on my laptop so much right. uh you know uh, working and all that that i try not to um uh try not to to do it may it probably makes me dull and boring but uh, not at all so so i'm going to give you one streaming recommendation which is a very broad one okay. I signed up for YouTube Premium, so there's no ads, no commercials. Uh, right. You, YouTube is an endless world of of right. just whatever your favorite topic is, there's an infinite amount of it and more every day. It's genuinely astonishing. Right. I mean, if you think uh, HBO I... or Netflix has a lot of stuff, uh, YouTube leaves them in the dust. Amazing. Yeah. I, uh, I, um, I have Hulu, but I really just use that to watch, uh, you know, the occasional sports or whatever. Um, we cut the cable connection uh, during the pandemic. Huh. Interesting. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors who helped to shape your career. Uh, so one of them was, um, it was uh, a, a gentleman named John Nelson, who was my first job out of college. Uh, uh, I worked 
as a department head in a hospital and uh and he taught me um first of all you know he's a very organized guy but he spoke very softly and one of the things i learned when you're speaking in public uh is that if the 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 left uh, i i just found that the audience leans in a little bit more when you're not shouting uh you're soft spoken i just found it very it's been very effective for me and sort of that's just how i present and i i just before that i always you know thought public speaking was sort of shouting and you know really being it's it, if you're slower in delivery and a little bit less um I don't want to say less animated. Uh, I, I just find, at least in the subject material that I speak with, I'm I'm uh, I'm a, a better presenter than I would be otherwise. And so I've always appreciated. It was like a subtle thing, and I've always appreciated that. Let's talk about books. Tell us uh, some of your favorite books, and what are you reading right now? So uh, I'm I'm on an auto industry kick. Uh-huh. And uh, and so um, uh, partly because my father-in-law, I'm in Detroit, um, my father-in-law worked for Ford for 39 years. And like most of my wife's family had some connection to the auto industry. So I've always been intrigued by it. And I just read an amazing book called Fins. Um, and it's it's all about Harley Earl, who was sure. essentially the GM, uh, you know, design uh, sort chief. of. Yeah, just led led the industry, brought fins into the mix, and uh, and one thing I learned in the book was uh, it didn't da- it didn't dawn on me um, that uh, that you know the president of GM his last name was Sloan and the second in command was Kettering, and my one of my uh, daughter daughter-in-laws works at Sloan Kettering because they were sort of behind the that hospital in terms of getting it started is my understanding. And who would have thought, I'm reading a book about Detroit auto industry, and they had this um, cancer hospital in uh, Manhattan, which is sort of, you know, this world-class thing. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the other thing, and I've read, like, the, I just, re- you know, reread The Reckoning by David Halberstam. And, oh, sure. Uh, and, and, and it... I just never realized how backwards Henry Ford was, uh, you know, beginning in from the depression on, he just built one car, you know, the famous thing, you can, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, um, all that, um, and how the industry really changed and Harley Earl really sort of, you know, brought it into accessorizing and making cars decorative and a sort of a statement of yourself. Um, and, and that's been my my focus. I've read several auto industry books just in the last couple of months, just because um, uh, I think I was subconsciously because I was preparing to go to Detroit and I wanted something to talk about with my in-laws. You know, the the funny thing is I just read the book Summer of 27. Um, trying to remember who, who wrote it, but I love everything he writes. Uh, and he talks about that was kind of a myth that it was uh, you can get a Model T in any color you want as long as it it's black. Um, Bill Bryson. That's uh, it turns out yeah. that if you got the coupe, it, you could get it in this color and the convertible in that color. Or or yeah, they, they were like adding. Yeah. yeah. 
they started to add, it was like three or four colors they started adding, but only after intense pressure and shutting the factory down for a year to retool for the next right. model. That's right. Um, it, you know, really interesting. Um, yeah, Ford, funny, Ford uh, was in Ford was in a lot of trouble, and and GM had really given them a run for the money in in the twenties uh, by introducing design and, and new innovations. Right, and and a lot of people because of the car itself made fun of Edsel, like what Edsel stood for. Uh, but Edsel's really the one that kept Ford going, yeah. um, as you know, the father sort of, you know, was sort of anchored to the past, and not such a nice guy. Um, <laughs> to say the least. But, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, let's talk about advice to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either real estate or appraisal. What what sort of advice would you give them? Well, uh, I think, you know, in when I think of uh, real estate or valuation, I think there's a lot more upside in terms of future potential going into the commercial side rather than the residential side of the, of the business. Um, I think there's more opportunity. Um, it, it's a, the, on the residential side, and this is going back to my earlier criticism, of the appraisal foundation to get into residential, you essentially have to work for two years for nothing or barely anything. You have to hire somebody. You have to be hired by somebody who's willing to mentor you. And the reason why they generally don't is because after they teach you everything you know for two years, many, many times the new person goes out on their own, right? So there is a, um, it's an industry that's aging out. And that's part of the reason why I'm so emphatically, you know, trying to um, you know, sort of hit a, you know, swing a baseball bat against what the appraisal foundation has done. They've essentially, you know, part of the problem is this two year mentoring system, which accountants and lawyers and like, no one has this after you take your license licensing test, you can function and make a living. You don't make as much as somebody with more experience, but you let the market sort it out um, in terms of, you know, fee for service in our industry. You can't do that. So I, I wonder I there's if there's more... a correlation between that mentoring process and the lack of diversity. If you're hiring a friend or a family member, hey, maybe that person is less likely to be different than you are. Oh, absolutely. That's a big part of it, and that's part of the problem. Uh, it, you know, it, it just it just um, you know sort of continues the uh, sort of the composition of the industry, uh, which the industry des- desperately needs, you know, new voices. Um, so I, that's why I've been very outspoken about it. Um, uh, so uh, I have four boys. I, they're all adult men now and they all are gainfully employed. So I feel like we did our job as parents. Um, they're all, you know, doing well and all that. But I, w- my wife and I uh, wouldn't let them take over from us um, because I, I fear for the future huh. um, of the industry, our, of the residential industry. Uh, and, and, you know, also, too, I think kids taking over the family business, I feel like they need to be out in the world for five or seven years. Right. Um, and then come back if they really want to come back. But uh, I think that that ship has sailed. Hmm. Really interesting. And our final question, 
What do you know about the world of real estate, appraisals, market pricing today that you wish you knew way back in the 1980s when you were first launching Miller Samuel? Uh, so this is really a, a I, I, I thought a lot about this. Um, people with experience in real estate don't know as much about market pricing as you think they do. Just because someone is experienced, you know, has been around a long time, doesn't mean they're any better than someone that has experience that is a fraction of that. And the reason why I say that is there's a lot of lethargy where um, individuals, hey, I've been doing it this way for 25 years. Um, and as it turns out, real estate in the last decade or maybe a little bit longer, last 15, 20 years, has become a lot more volatile. So all the r rules of thumb, so to speak, that someone, you know, with my my sort of level of experience in terms of, you know, uh, time, um, isn't relevant. And, uh, and so I think, I think you don't want to have that sort of age bias towards, uh, you know, that youth is, is also a, uh, I, a good source of uh, feedback on market conditions. Huh. Really, really quite interesting. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for being so generous with your time. That was Jonathan Miller. He is the CEO and co-founder of Miller Samuel. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, check out any of the previous 400 discussions we've had over the past, oh, I think it's just about seven years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the team that helps put this conversation together each week. Sebastian Escobar is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.